Welcome to the Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the deep to the daft. Let's do a roll call. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I am a doctoral candidate at Kent State University. I am a practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Jen Cook, assistant professor, counselor education and counseling psychology, Marquette University, Milwaukee. I'm Gina Martin, doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa and affiliate faculty at Northwestern University. Hi, everybody. I'm Elliot Ingersoll. I'm a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and co-host iTopically on the PodTalk Network. Okay, let's get right down to it. Stephanie, you have the first question. If you had one, how was your cohort in grad school? Jen? This sucks that I'm the first to go because I didn't have one. (laughs) Um, They accepted two students for the doctoral program the year I started at Virginia Tech, and the other person decided not to come. So I was a cohort of one, but as an only child, that actually worked out just fine for me. And my master's program, it was a program of like 300, 400 students. I don't know. It was huge. So we were not cohorted in my counseling master's program either. Gina? So you were in a class by yourself. Uh, Of course. I mean, this is a given and it worked out perfectly that way. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, it kind of makes me sad to hear that because I had an unbelievable cohort experience in my master's program that I definitely want to share about. We had 16 and we were in a new program. So we were only the third cohort to graduate from this program. And it really made for a very tight knit group of um, people. So we still keep in touch. We're still very close. And it was just an awesome, awesome experience to have that. In the doc program, it's been a little bit different. We're still close. Um, But my doc program's cohort was a little bit unique in that three are from South Korea, one is from China, and then there's me. So we've had a really diverse group and uh, we've all gotten close, but we all bring such different cultures to the group, which has made for a really unique experience. Um, And I'm going on and on here, but I have a great story to go with that. When I was in my first year, I was pregnant and I was really, really sick. Um, and my cohort group brought me different varieties from their ethnic backgrounds. And so I had plenty of seaweed soup for nausea and, uh, it didn't really help, but the thought really (laughs) counted in that. So it was kind of a unique experience. All right, Elliot. Well, you know, we had a, we had a cohort and we were coming from literally all over the globe. Some several people were from from European uh, Union countries, um, and it was really great. But you know what? I when I was looking at the question, I was like, it it was like a lot of bands that I worked in. It was great at the time, and it it, it all fell apart after graduation. And I was thinking of a quote from I think it was the movie The Big Chill, like we were very close for a short period of time in a very kind of controlled environment. And then, of course, after that, once life started happening, it, it kind of fell apart. And I don't know if it has to fall apart, but um, in my case, it 
it did. And I, I do kind of miss those people, but there were, you know, it's just, we all kind of went our separate ways. And I guess that's all I have to say about that. Marty. Well, um, uh, this is a little bit of a sore spot. Let's put it that way. I went for my doctorate at University of South Carolina, where I was living at the time in South Carolina. And my cohort was a small one of six students spread all across South Carolina. Um, me and one other person lived in Columbia, South Carolina. The rest were two hours away in, in all directions. Um, the, I think I was the one of six people who wanted to actually become a counselor educator. The rest were getting the doctorate for whatever purpose or reason to extend their practice. I know one at the time wanted to get it in South Carolina so he could take the license to North Carolina where they would allow him to become licensed as a psychologist at the time um, with that doctorate. So uh, nobody was really focused on counselor education um, except for myself. After the first year, we kind of went our, our different paths um, in terms of the coursework. So uh, much of my doctorate felt like I was doing it alone. Um, about three years into my doctorate, I started to notice the new cohorts were being treated a lot more in a cohesive manner and organized that way. Um, the story that drives me home on that was I was presenting at ACA. I didn't know anybody from South Carolina that was going to be at ACA, except uh, maybe for some of my faculty. So I planned my own travel and hotel down there. And while I was walking down the street, I ran into a cohort member from a recent cohort. And I was surprised to see him there. He informed me that his cohort had a suite and they were having a party for South Carolina at a reception that evening. No notice went out to me as a student presenting there. No faculty member told me about this. I felt like my cohort or anyone and anything before them had been abandoned. And I'm still grumpy about it, South Carolina. So my money's going to the University of Illinois. Steph? So this is my third or fourth, really, experience being in a cohort in grad school. And this is my first time where it feels like you're on one of those TV shows with all the people kind of starting out and not knowing, but they kind of all know. So usually it, it's in the uh, legal or medical profession. Um, but it just, even though a lot of us have prior experience and, and really, you know, um, are very skilled in, in a lot of different ways already, there's just kind of that going through the process together. So this is really special. It was just the first time that I've actually met people and had a whole group that I was put with by random chance. And it turns out for the most part, I mean, you know, some of us going at different paces and whatever, but really, I really like pretty much everybody. Um, it's a good group. I was really surprised, especially when I maybe just heard things far and wide that maybe everyone's not as lucky and just even listening to this. So I also from my three other experiences, um, I had a lot of <laughs> ways to compare, but this was just a really great cohort in the sense that we support each other, we communicate and, um, you know, we, we, we can really commiserate and empathize. So I've just enjoyed that as an added bonus to my 
doc experience. Next question, Jen. Okay, my question is moving us out of the counseling realm for a second. So when did you learn to cook? How did you learn and what was the first thing you made? And going to Gina first. I love this question. It brings back such good memories. Uh, so I can't. I come from a very large Italian family. So cooking has been a central focus of our life ever since I was born. And I had a great aunt who was my dad's mom's sister. Um, my mom's mom passed away when she was young, so we never had a maternal grandmother. And so Auntie, as we called her, her name was Aunt Marie, uh, she kind of stepped into that role for us when we were young. So she was a great aunt, but we called her Auntie. And she always spent every holiday at our house. She would come and visit and spend the weekend or a long weekend. And she would always cook every time she came. And it would be amazing to me. Our fridge would be empty and she would somehow cook up the best minestrone or whatever. Um, so she was magical in the kitchen. And I think I was about 12 years old when I first learned her famous recipe of gnocchis, which are those like dumpling like Italian pastas. And I remember her teaching us and showing me and my younger sister how to roll them. You know, you have to use a particular method with your thumb and you, they have to go in a specific direction and all this. And she would yell at us for not doing it right. Um, and that was the first thing that I learned to cook and something that I still to this day cherish and love cooking because of that. How about you, Marty? Well, um, I grew up in an Irish, uh, with an Irish Catholic mother and with a Irish, German, French grandmother in the same household. So everything we cooked was bland and everything we cooked was, uh, all the meat was overcooked and tough, you know, cause you got to get that, you got to get that disease out of it. Um, that was the kind of concepts that we thought about. But uh, I, I, so I was surrounded by cooking growing up, but I, I, I did a lot of observation and, and not a lot of preparation. But really my junior year in undergrad, when I moved into a basement apartment of a huge house and um, it was broken up, the, the house was broken up into lots of other apartments, but I had the basement and it was a very strange basement. It was a zigzag basement. So there's bedroom, then you zigged into the kitchen, then you zagged actually past the furnace, and then you zigged again to get to the shower. Um, so I did the cooking there. My parents were not pleased with the choice, uh, but I was on my own, so I had to cook. And complicated uh, was the fact that the grocery store was a good distance. And um, I had a bike, and I had to ride the bike on the brick lined streets of Urbana, Illinois, to get to the grocery store, grab what groceries I could, and then balance them uh, alternating on handlebars so the groceries were kind of equal balanced to drive back home. Um, so I picked up a talent that kind of is part chemistry, part um, cooking, where I would try to MacGyver a meal out of whatever I could find in the pantry. So it was come up with some creative method to experiment. I learned a lot about experimenting with ingredients, 
Um, I ate everything I cooked, no matter how bad it was, but I learned a lot about cooking in the problem, uh, the process. First meal was probably beefy mac with green beans. One box of mac and cheese, one pound of cooked ground beef, one small can of tomato paste, and one can of dried, cut, drained, uh, cut green beans. Um, it was kind of the precursor at that time to what we know as hamburger helper. Um, I've tried to convince Aileen to permit me to recreate that dish, but that hasn't happened in 40 years. So, Elliot? Yeah. Um, my I, Probably my first experience was with my Uncle Jack, and I was in Saskatoon. And when my Uncle Jack was hungover, which was a lot, he would have me make the breakfast. And so I would make fried eggs and toast on one, done on one side. And he would sing his morning song. And uh, that was my very first experience, but it was pretty basic. And then um, when I moved out of my uh, parents' house, I think the first thing I made was a roasted chicken with a breading made of Ritz crackers, breadcrumbs, and every herb that I just had, like MacGyvering it. I was just kind of like, yeah, this will work, you know. And I had a, a, it was on a second floor apartment, but it had a porch and I had my, my parents over and I had made them, uh, this chicken, uh, you know, it, it went up from there. The bar started uh, a wee bit low, but it was, it was, it was pretty good actually. And back to Stephanie. So for me, I I tried, I'm trying to think back, you know, I come from a Jewish family. So you'd think I'd have some Jewish grandmother tucked away somewhere that was always teaching me how to cook chicken and matzo balls. Um, and, and I did have a grandmother who often cooked and she would always have them frozen. So when I go to visit her in Florida, she already had the matzo balls already frozen and would make them for dinner all the time. So I didn't really learn how to cook there. However, at day school, we really were exposed to a lot. I feel like the older I get, the more I realize how much just different things from all over they were incorporating in, into their teaching. Um, so we did a, an international food cookbook kind of series in one of our classes. So we did, it was um, like a Spanish chicken and rice. And she taught us even what saffron was and taught us about how they got it. and we made that and we stayed late after school and we used the kitchen and we made that and we made a few other dishes as well. And I remember making that saffron chicken and I made it at home a few weeks later. I wanted to try it out and kind of go in from there, but that was my first real experience with cooking actual food. Jen. Interestingly, I do not recall when I learned how to cook. And so it's kind of funny that I'm asking you all this question, but I love hearing people's stories about food. And I especially like to hear how people have either figured out on their own or been taught how to cook and by whom, because those are always really interesting stories. The reason I never learned formally how to cook was that my mom always had me with her in the kitchen from the time I was teeny tiny. And I never remember not being in the kitchen with my mother. And she would always give me jobs to do. And one of the ways that um, she would, I, I think, lower her anxiety was tell me everything that she was doing. She would say, 
Okay, Jenny, I'm getting the carrots out of the refrigerator and then we're going to julienne the carrots. I mean, this this was my mother's way of speaking and talking about food and would just describe every little thing that she did. And so I've always had this confidence in the kitchen that I probably is, is over my range. Um, but and probably what led me into the restaurant business um, very young because we did catering and cakes out of our house when I was when I was a young person as well. Um, but I always have an overconfidence when it comes to the kitchen and feel like if I have a recipe or even if I just have the ingredients, I love the references to MacGyvering because that's totally my style of even when I go to the grocery store, I use the ad of what's on sale to decide what it is that I'm going to purchase. And I'm confident that I can make anything out of whatever it is that I have picked up that is on sale. And so, and the other interesting piece is neither of my grandmothers could cook for anything. Um, Neither of them were good cooks, especially my mother's mother who was cooking for a brood. She had nine children. And so it was all sort of the, you know, the, my grandfather was Irish and she was Swedish and Greek. And so it was kind of the bland overcooked meat that Marty was speaking about in mass, right? Like you needed this gigantic feed the crew. And, you know, one day was spaghetti, the next day was meatloaf and you could expect the same dang thing the next week. And my maternal grandmother, bless her heart and may she rest she would burn cookies even. Um, you know, she couldn't just quite pull them out of the oven at the right time, you know, but she did make some killer pea soup if you brought her a ham bone that always had hot dogs cut up into it, which I just thought was fabulous. So I developed a love for pea soup mainly because I loved hot dogs. Gina? So my next question is talk about a time that you were out of your comfort zone and how did it change you? So we'll start with Marty. Well, it, it had to be, uh, and I remember this as a, we'll always remember this, one of my trips to Turkey. Um, I had been to Turkey a couple of times before that, but had always been well hosted and without any issues about getting around um, or being left on my own. But I was going to be there for about four weeks, and the sponsoring university Um, instead of keeping me in downtown Istanbul, which uh, is great and lively, and I can get my needs taken care of there, they put me uh, close to their campus, which was 15 miles outside of downtown Istanbul, at the time a a developing area. And, you know, I was going to be there for four weeks. They decided to put me in a small men's dorm. I think there are probably only maybe 20 people in this dorm. And um, it was surrounded with a sort of modern residential community, but it wasn't one of those things you could walk out your door and walk down the street and find anything to do other than look at other people's apartments. So I spent my night there most of the time um, with no phone, because at that time, cell phones and international calls were complicated. The only internet was in the lobby of this men's dorm. Uh, it was a computer and it had a Turkish keyboard. So that made things even more of a, a challenge for me. There are some key changes you have to do in order to uh, to work a Turkish keyboard. Um, I was dependent on my host picking me up at the previously agreed time. Um, and they ran late a lot. So I did a lot of waiting 
so there, but there was no way for me to contact them directly. Occasionally they'd call the guard at the front desk who would then give me the phone and I, and I would talk with them. The guard at the front desk, however, became a close friend because I spent most of my evening doing a little email late at night. Uh, most of the men were asleep. The guard was there and he would invite me back into his office, spoke no English. I spoke no Turkish. And we would huddle around a black and white television and watch whatever show was on there. And we would try to mime each other, uh, what we communicate, what we needed. I love the experience. It convinced me that I could survive and enjoy being linguistically restricted. Um, and it taught me strategies and lessons that I used other places I went in the world. So that's, um, it, it's always to right now, it always comes back to international travel. And that story was, was a big part of that. Elliot. Uh, for me, it was my first queer dance club and that would be in Toronto. My cousin took me, I think it was even called Q club and obvious reasons, but as a professional musician, one of the kind of jokes is like, well, I became a musician cause I don't dance really well. But all of a sudden, I'm kind of surrounded by people who I'm resonating with a lot more. And I'm like, I just was like, okay, let's do this. And danced better than I had, you know, at least in my perception for a long time. But it was also still kind of coming into my identity. And um, it was just very, it was gorgeously welcoming. And I always appreciate that. Um, so that, yeah. It it was it was difficult to start, but after about an hour, uh, things things loosened up quite a bit. Stephanie, I think I've mentioned once or twice in some other answers talking about the years I spent learning jujitsu, and I think back to the first test, so my yellow belt test, and not only had the process of getting to that point been a whole exercise of being out of my comfort zone from the first day I walked into the dojo uh, to learning and, and actually jumping right in and trying to do the things when you look at everybody else doing them, you're like, oh, it'll be a while before I do that. But no, they had us like jumping off and flipping and everything by the second week. So you get to the exam and then you have to do all of these moves in front of everybody else. And I've never been one to be very calm when performing in front of an audience necessarily um you know and it was the first time that i did things well i felt confident doing you know in in front of people too but then at the end of the test they had you grapple so it was like a free form grapple and and i was grappling with a brown belt who obviously has many more years and is way more um skilled than i am and I don't know. He was kind of known around the dojo as being maybe a little wild, maybe a little reckless at times. And he had picked me up and I, and I was going over. So he picked me up and he was going to drop me basically on my head. Um, you know, so if it's like he picked me up and then dropping me backwards over him. So at the same time, he's picking me up. And I just remember thinking like, well, here we go. Cause I knew it was coming and all of the lessons and learning how to fall. And it all kind of came right into me and everything slowed down in that moment. And it was just like, it all happened. And I landed perfectly. Like it, 
it was the best it could be. I mean, it still, it stung, it still, you know, rattled me a little bit, but you were safe and it was all good. And I think kind of that in that moment, um, I felt like a different person after that test, but that moment was really what I was just like, yeah, all right. Um, you know, and it, and it kind of set the tone for the years moving forward. Jen. There are so many different things I feel like I could choose from. And I've been having a hard time, like jumping in my brain of like what, what to choose with this question. And the thing that stands out the most, which was not something that I realized I was out of my comfort zone when it was happening, but more so in hindsight. And I think even in years and years of hindsight, after the fact of looking back on the experience and that was going to college. So going for my BA, um, I was first generation college in my family. I'm still unclear of how I even got into college or how I knew like where to show up and the kind of stuff to bring. Like some of that stuff is still a mystery to me. Um, but when I look back, I was completely a fish out of water. Um, I have always been a kind of person who had no problem, like being away from home, making friends, all of those kinds of things. That wasn't the hard part for me, but I didn't get this whole like independent learning thing. And even what it meant to choose a major or what financial aid was. I mean, even now I still look back on it. I'm like, how did I, how did I make it through that experience? And in fact, at the end of my first year, I had 2.47 grade point average and was in pretty hard shape and was about to, you know, be put on academic probation. And I had to say to one of my friends, you know, what had happened. Everyone thought I was doing fine, you know, because I'm clever and witty. Everyone thought I was doing great in my classes. Give me a break. Right. Um, because I never learned how to study in high school because I never went. Um, and so finally I said to one of my friends, I said, Hey, um, I know this sounds stupid, but can you teach me how to study? And I remember her like looking at me puzzled for a second. And then she said, somebody had to teach me too. And she was a year ahead of me and she sat down with me and helped me to learn how to study. But, you know, you think, I think back on this and the range of events and how much of a risk it was for me to go to college and to really have zero clue what I was doing or why I was there, except to get a good job in the future. And it really, it changed my life in terms of what it opened in terms of doors for me, but also how I see the world is only nuanced by it, that I still get to have all the things I had before then and all the things after, but that initial experience, it really changed and formed me in some pretty significant ways. Gina? Yeah, I love these answers. And I just think there's, it's so interesting to hear each of you talk about this. And I'm going to relate this back to counseling. Um, because I think that, you know, what each of you talked about was how putting yourself out there, right. Asking for help, learning to communicate with someone without words and stuff like that. I think all of these things show that you're, you're putting yourself out there, right. You're exposing some of that unwanted stuff. Some of the things that you've never gone through before and realizing that it's, it's okay to let people see that. And so this ties to my experience for this. Um, which is actually counseling, doing counseling the first time. And I don't know this, I don't know why this stood out to me so much, but I had this one client who um, was really, really early in my practicum experience. So I was brand new, fresh 
didn't know any of the micro skills, didn't know theories, didn't know what CBT stood for, nothing. Um, and I walked into the session and this client literally sat down and said, I hate counselors and I'm basically going to try to make your life miserable. And I was like, awesome. This is like day three. So um, that was probably the most fish out of water feeling I have felt in this field and learning that, okay, I'm going to throw all that stuff aside. I don't need the textbook. I don't need to know what CBT means to just be a human with this person. Um, I let that person see who I was. And then in turn, I was able to see who they were. And I think it was a beautiful experience. And at the end of the year that we worked together, that person was one of my favorite clients. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but they were. And uh, when they were leaving, when we were doing termination, I asked what counseling meant to them or what they had learned. And they looked at me and said, you, you showed me that I was worth it because you were willing to sit with me despite all that. And I just thought that was such a beautiful, tremendous experience. And so that's what, to me, putting yourself out of your comfort zone means and what it should be. Okay, next question goes to Marty. Yeah, uh, this is kind of a, a work-related question. Um, and we all organize our work in different ways and do it in different ways. But I've always been fascinated with productivity and work. So this question is, what personal work skill would you like to have better control over? The kinds of tasks, the way in which we do tasks, the how we break up our work. What personal work skill would you like to have better control over? Elliot? Hmm. You know, I thought about this for a while, but I got to say inspiration because I'll get it. And it's very often at three in the morning and it's not just about counseling work. It's about all of my writing and my, the fiction stuff I work on, the counseling and spirituality stuff. I was listening. I was up I get insomnia. So I was listening to a Carpenter's Greatest Hits and I was listening to Rady Days and Mondays always get me down. And the opening line, you know, Karen Carpenter sings from a major key to a minor key in a, in a couple of phrases and it just touched me very deeply. And then it, my brain exploded with the thoughts of uh, Persian manichaeism and, you know, the duality that good and evil are equally balanced in the universe. And then, of course, I thought, the, the minor and the major keys are equally balanced in that song. And of course, when I thought about her life, you know, she was put, she was a great drummer, brilliant drummer. And she was put out there as a kind of a pop singer. And, you know, she died of anorexia and, you know, who knows what kind of show business pressures were working on her, but I was like, ah, and so I, you know, I, I, I just texted one of my colleagues who's co-host of the Apply Topically, Stephanie Durkar. I said, hey, got a half hour tomorrow. I got to bounce some stuff off of you, you know, but I had to wait because I'm not going to call her in the middle of the night. And she's always very gracious. And we started talking about good and evil and, you know, manichaeism and, and how good and evil manifests in, in, in human lives and, you know, how, it, how that is extracted in the counseling sessions. But I wish I could time that better. Because I didn't get to bed that night after that, because I was just like, ah, and then I was going back through my books on theodicy and, and the origins of evil and human evil, supernatural evil, natural evil. So, you know, that's just kind of, I guess, probably too much. Anyway, Jen, no, Steph, 
Sorry, I'm used to going to Jen. Steph. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny though too because whenever somebody just makes a mis like just miscalls me something, 90% of the time it's Jen. And my parents were saying that when they were gonna name me, they were going between Steph and Jen the whole time. So even like my next door neighbor for the first three years called me Jen, even though he knew my name was Stephanie. It was just for whatever reason, I so you, you have good company, Elliot. Um, so when it comes to uh, personal work skill, <sighs> this was a hard one, obviously, because I'm not saying anything right away. That I think sometimes it's just getting to, but see, I don't think that's a skill necessarily, being able to get out as much as I intend to get done per day. That's, that's just kind of like the nature of productivity and the nature of writing or what have you. Um, maybe it would just be staying more in my cocoon, in my um, focus cocoon and not letting the other things that pop in my head become important, even if they are important and just kind of saying nothing else matters except for whatever you're doing at this moment and bringing myself back. So I think just kind of not letting the other thoughts pop into my brain and being able to bring myself more quickly back to the project I'm working on. I'm working on that mindfulness. That's something I'm going to continue to work on. Jen. Well, this is not a direct work skill, but something that greatly affects my work is sleep. And I have a real hard time just putting my ass in the bed. And that is not good because I get up early to work. And you know, we're talking 5 a.m. typically when I have to write, like that's where I'm at, five o'clock. Um, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, but somewhere between 4.30 and 6 a.m., that's when I'm getting to the computer. So this nonsense that I need to watch one more episode of whatever it is that I am watching or whatever game it is I'm playing on the iPad or whatever nonsense keeps me from the sleep, this is not okay because I. I am not good with, without a decent amount of sleep. And when I say decent amount of sleep, like legit, like I am a solid, like ideally eight to nine hours a night person, probably like I've always been that way, you know, only child, we were allowed to sleep as much as we wanted. And can I function on four or five? Eh, you know, but the sleep thing really does make the difference. You know, I think I've got this scheduling thing down pretty well. Like, Elliot, I hear you with the inspiration and I don't wait for inspiration anymore. I just put my butt at the computer and, you know, make myself type until something comes out that is, you know, all of those things I, I feel like, and I'm going to jinx myself. So I'm going to knock on my table here, but I mean, by and large, those are fine. If I have had decent sleep and then I get in that awful cycle of the nap situation, um, which of course COVID has afforded me, um, working from home, but other times when we're going to the office several days a week, eh, not so much. Gina? Yeah, so mine's not necessarily a skill, and this might make me sound a little controlling, but I'm going to say it anyway. So the one thing I would want to control more in work is how to deal with other people, <laughs> waiting on other people. Um, I'm currently in the dissertation phase of my PhD which I know I've talked about a lot on here, um, but I'm waiting for participants and 
it's all out of my control. There's nothing I can do to progress on this dissertation until I have more participants. So the one thing that I would like to control more of is not having to depend on, wait on, be at the mercy of others. Uh, so that would be my my one thing. The rest of it, like you said, Jen, you know, I can crank stuff out. I can put words on paper. I can, you know, force myself to stay in that focus cocoon. But when it comes to waiting and being at the mercy of others, I just don't thrive. <laughs> I don't do well. So back to you, Marty. Well, for me, um, project planning, and I, I use that as a term. You know, so if I've got a book chapter to do, there's all sorts of pieces that go into that. And, uh, you know, if I could do that with a project planning mindset that this week I'm going to do this, next week I'm going to do this, next week I'm going to do that, that would all be great. But I'm living in a doing the next step sort of way. Uh, what's the next step in terms of project planning? And that's no way to run your life. You know, so I've tried to use a variety of project planners like uh, OmniFocus and other software to organize. And I spend a lot of time organizing. And then it's still whatever is happening in the moment uh, is what, you know, is is how my project planning works out. You know, I wish I could get better handle on laying things out and executing projects over a period of time rather than the just-in-time work that uh, I do so often. So. That's my that's my uh, Achilles heel there, project planning. Elliot, you've got the next question. So if reincarnation, sometimes called transmigration, were somehow real, where and when might you like to give this another go? Stephanie. I'd like to try this again in the future where time travel is possible. Right. Okay. So, but really I, I do, I would want to, I like having options, but I also, even, even if just being able to transport, just teletransportation, just being able to boom, be somewhere else without having putting the energy into traveling, that, that would be cool. Um, and, and finally, this would all happen concurrently. We could fly like without planes and stuff, we could just, we could find a way to fly as humans. All of that in place, I'm there. Jen. Well, I don't actually believe that people come back as animals. Like I think that you kind of work your way up from animal to human. And so once you're human, you know, you don't get to come back as an animal, but like every time I read this question and thought through it, I was like, I feel this urge to come back as a dolphin and be in the sea. I think I spent so much time watching Flipper growing up. I don't know what it is. I mean, I grew up by the ocean and by the intercoastal waterway as well. So I saw dolphins and they were just always so friendly and having a great time. And so I think I maybe that's just where my mindset is right now. I'm just wanting to be free in the sea, playing and frolicking with my friends. I don't know if dolphins frolic. I think that's more of a, you know, on land kind of thing. But if they could frolic, I would be the frolicking dolphin. <laughs> Gina. I love it. Um, I also thought about animals too at this one, but I think, I, I don't know, I went back and forth, but I think I'm going to go with, I want to go back to like the 1800s. I want the big hoop dresses. I want the little towns. I want the dirt road. And 
Um, yeah. So I, I would love to travel back to the past and just see how things were, see how life was. But that being said, I think I'd really miss modern plumbing and a whole lot of other <laughs> novelties we have in the 21st century. So I think I would love to travel back in time, but I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could handle it. Marty. Well, you know, when I think of reincarnation, I think of previous lives versus future lives. Um, and I think there, I, I missed the 60s. Let me put it this way. I missed being old enough in, in the 60s to not get drafted and be old enough to have fun um, and be part of that whole creative thing that happened in music and in film during that time. So that's one part that I thought if I had a previous life, it would have been an older life during the age of the 60s. And um, But then I started worrying, could my have two souls coexisting at the same time? Uh, you know, my younger self and my older, hipper self. Um, and if that's the case, then if I can't have two souls existing at the same time, because we might run into each other, that would be kind of cool. Um, I'd have to go back to another time, which was creative. And for me, that was Freud in uh, Vienna, Austria. And either I'd be working with him or working against him. Uh, I, I tried to find a period of time that had penicillin, because I think that would be essential for me um, to have some type of, of antibiotic. I don't want to, you know, go back to a time where there's all sorts of uh, horrible ways to die. So that would be a condition I'd have on reincarnating, reincarnation. Elliot. Well, yeah, this is a question, you know, I teach a counseling and spirituality course and people have a lot of thoughts about this. And I'm convinced from what I've read in physics, um, it, time's not chronological. Everything's happening at once. It's, it's a sphere. Every moment of time sits next to every other moment of time. So there's no chronology. And then when I got into Doctor Who, I'm like, yeah, a big ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. Totally buy that. And then I was like, I know enough about history. There's nowhere in the past I would want to go back to. I resonate with Marty's like uh, thought about, oh, I could be born in 1956 and I could just kind of ride the crest of the wave about rock music and the technologies that made the music possible. But I think if I had to pick one, I would like, you know, I would shoot myself about 500 to 1,000 years into the future and I would be hoping to hell we did a lot better. Uh, but I, I would probably end up as like, you know, a person living in poverty in Indonesia and realizing, yeah, it didn't, it didn't go as well as, 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 as I'd hoped, but that's that weird. That's a little bit of Americanism in me, that optimism. I keep thinking, oh, we'll get better. And then it's just like, eh, maybe not, but I, I appreciate your answers because I, you know, who knows what's going on here? I sure don't. So that takes us to the final shot question. And uh, the final shot question this week is, which of the five senses would you say is your strongest? Start with Stephanie. Hearing. Um, yeah, hearing by a long shot. Jen. Smell. Gina. 
Also smell for sure. Elliot? Well, I'm right there with you both because smell, since my other senses are deteriorating through the progressive degeneration of age, smell is still really strong. And it's, you know, you know how they say, like when a person loses their sight, they pick up more in hearing. And I think as my hearing is gone and, you know, my eyes are going, I'm picking up more in smell because I will actually feel like someone smells angry or someone smells anxious. And it it, it just kind of works for me. But that's the one, the olfactory sense that is, that is still kicking for me. Marty. Intuition. My other senses are working overtime. Uh, so intuition beats them all. What did we learn tonight? Elliot, uh, when he has rainy days and Mondays, they just get him inspired. Gina, let us know sitting with us every week is because we're worth it. And Jen, her inspiration comes from a butt in a chair. Thanks to the squad, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, and Elliot. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on thepodtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme song is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. Thank you.